ASN Kidney Week 2017 in New Orleans, Louisiana, featured presentations of multiple high-impact clinical trials which presented new insights into various areas of nephrology. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, Dr. Pascal Lane and Dr. Kelly Hindman discuss these trials and share their thoughts. I'm Pascal Lane. I am a pediatric nephrologist at the University of Oklahoma. And I am Kelly Hindman. I am a basic scientist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in the Division of Nephrology. Well, this morning we had the privilege of hosting the press conference about the late-breaking high-impact clinical trials, and we're going to talk about them some more this afternoon. The first one uh, we talked about was the time trial. Right. So the time trial, which was led by Dr. Dember from the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine, was a cluster randomized trial fully embedded in clinical care delivery with no on-site research staff or primary data collection. They were doing an observational study of patients receiving maintenance hemodialysis, and they were testing the question of whether longer sessions, longer than four hours, they were aiming for 4.25 hours, it was actually has better outcomes in this population of patients receiving dialysis. Well, the big interesting thing about this is, first of all, it's a negative trial. Right. How often do those make the high-impact clinical trial list? Um, They actually terminated it early because they were seeing an insufficient difference in treatment time. In addition to that, besides the poor separation between the two groups, there was no difference in mortality or hospitalization rate between the two groups. So they really didn't show much in the trial itself, but they did provide proof of this methodology where you can go out into the real world and figure out a way to do a trial that's just part of random everyday clinical care without having to have an expensive clinical trial. That's right. So she was talking to us about how this was a pragmatic trial Mm -hmm. and that it's in real time and with a real set of people, they included pretty much everybody in their cohort. They didn't have a lot of exclusion criteria. And so I found that very interesting. But it was unfortunate that they didn't find any differences in their groups. Right, and it's interesting to think about the reasons for this. I mean, many patients don't want to do longer hemodialysis. You don't know if the payers were balking at having longer treatments. They selected units where people were amenable to it, but there are just all sorts of reasons that they may have failed to get the separation they wanted. Right, but as she highlighted at the end of her presentation, there was a number of positive proof of concepts um, that came through from their trial, so they still feel like this was a success on many levels. Yes. All right. Well, the next one was, I believe, the reprise trial of tolvaptin in autosomal dominant PKD. (laughs) Yes. So in this study, they were looking at a cohort of patients who have autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. And previous studies have looked at really early time points in disease and uh, whether or not tolvaptin slowed kidney growth and improved EGFR decline. But in this study, they wanted to look at an older, more advanced patient cohort. And so this was a phase three, multi-center, randomized withdrawal, placebo-controlled, double-blind trial. 
Okay, well, tolvaptin has shown in both animal models and human studies before some benefits in slowing cyst growth and kidney growth in ADPKD as well as preserving function. Um, these patients had later stages of CKD than in the earlier trials, ranging from stage 3B to stage 4, and the primary endpoint here was a change in estimated GFR. At one year, they found that patients in the placebo group had a 3.61 mil per minute per 1.73 meter squared reduction in GFR, and that this was significantly less in those treated with tolvaptin at 2.34 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. To put this in perspective, they said that this would come out to about a four-year prolongation of time to dialysis for the tolvaptin group. Now, once again, this trial was plagued by increased withdrawal because of side effects from tolvaptin. Some of these were elevated transaminases, as has been reported before, but a good deal of them were just from the polyuric effects of the medications and people not being able to tolerate it. Yeah, that's right. I noticed that he had an increase in nocturia, thirst, polyuria, and also an increase in renal pain. And so those were interesting adverse events that they recorded in their group. Yeah, I suspect we'll learn more about this when we hear the full abstract presented. Yeah, I found it interesting though that their data did go along nicely with the two previous studies, Tempo 3-4 and Tempo 4-4 in the earlier stages of CKD. And so, yeah, I think this is an interesting treatment and I look forward to hearing more about it. I keep telling my ADPKD patients who are you know, children, I don't have anything for you today, but I'm betting that before your kidneys start failing, we're going to have a way to keep them from doing that. Mm -hmm. And this just gives me more optimism. Great. Let's see, what was our next study? I think the third one was out of Japan, and this is the Skubaki study. <laughs> and so this is using bardoxalone methyl, BARD, which is a NERF2 activator. And so NERF2 is a transcription factor. So this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-center phase two trial in patients with stages G3 and G4 diabetic kidney disease without identified risk factors for fluid overload, such as an increase in BMP greater than 200 picograms per mil, and no prior history of heart failure. And so patients were given BARD or placebo with a titration scheme where they were given 5, then 10, then 15 milligrams orally once a day over 16 weeks. And their primary endpoints was a change in GFR that was measured in this study by inulin clearance. They were also looking at the safety of BARD in these patients at different stages. Yeah, earlier studies in diabetic nephropathy where they had great hope for this drug did not turn out well because patients were prone to develop edema and volume overload. That's why when they did a secondary analysis of the initial studies and discovered that these patients often had elevated BNP and were at risk for congestive heart failure. So they selected patients who didn't have those risk factors for this subsequent study. There was also a problem with bardoxolone changing the metabolism of creatinine, which means estimated GFRs from serum creatinine may not reflect GFR, thus their use of inulin clearance. Um, it was very interesting to see that the placebo group over 16 weeks lost 0.69 milliliters per minute 
for 1.73 meters squared of GFR, while the bardoxalone group actually gained almost 6 milliliters of GFR, which is pretty amazing when you think mm. about it. Uh, they also looked at albuminuria, and it looks like albuminuria goes up in these patients. However, when you look at the change in GFR, the amount of albumin cleared is going up because the amount of GFR has gone up. So bardoxalone, which looked like it was down for the count a couple of years ago, now looks like it may be a promising agent, at least in a more select group of patients with diabetic kidney disease. Yes, and they also made the point that there were no safety concerns in these pre-selected patients and that they're planning on doing a larger phase three trial in 2018. Yep, that's <laughs> what we need. Okay. All right, well the next one was presented by Dr. Dewey who looked at two different methods of assessing coronary artery disease and the risk of acute kidney injury. Yes, yeah, so in this study, it was a randomized controlled trial. Patients with suspected coronary artery disease, so none of those that had already been diagnosed with it were included. So those suspected were recruited. Patients were randomly assigned one-to-one -to, -one to either the intracoronary agent delivery or intravenous with contrast. And they used the same low osmolar non-ionic contrast agent in both groups so that there was definitely no effect of the contrast agent themselves. So the primary outcomes in this analysis was contrast-induced acute kidney injury within three days following the contrast agent administration. And it was defined as either an increase in serum creatinine of greater than 0.5 mg per deciliter or 25% after 18 to 24 hours or 46 to 50 hours. So a few days after the administration of the contrast reagent. So this was interesting because there are a couple of ways now that you can screen for coronary artery disease in patients who you don't know already have it. One of those is to do a classic cardiac catheterization and inject into the coronary arteries. Now, one of the problems with that is that it means putting a catheter into the body and going either up through the aorta or through the radial artery up into the heart to inject those arteries with contrast. In addition to giving you know, contrast into an artery, uh, you also may embolize cholesterol, plaques, and other things. The other way to do this is with intravenous contrast and then to do a CT angiogram of the coronary vessels. What they found was quite interesting. The intracoronary angiography group had a 13% incident of um, acute kidney injury, while the group who got CTA only had 6%. They also had great longer-term mm -hmm. follow-up of 1.9 years. And the patients who did develop acute kidney injury had a lower estimated GFR at that time point as well. Um, what's pretty interesting also is that they managed to get, for the acute kidney injury, 98% of their patients got the creatinines measured and were assessed. But at, with almost two years of follow-up, 97% of the patients were able to be included in their study. Yeah. So they've shown that going with the uh, CT angio, you can reduce AKI and that AKI has significant long-term effects in this population. Yes, very cool. 
So our next study was also on acute kidney injury, and it was at the um, efficacy and safety of QPI-1002. And what QPI is, is it's a basically an sRNA that targets P53. And P53 is the master switch of apoptosis. And it's been found to be upregulating the kidneys of patients who are at risk for AKI. So in this study led by Dr. Courtville, uh, this was a phase two double-blind study with 341 patients enrolled and 165 of them placed on the QPI and 176 received placebo. And what I found interesting about this study is that they gave a single dose of this QPI to that group, so it was only given once. These were patients undergoing heart surgery, and what they did was right before they took them off of the pump for bypass surgery. They would uh, give them a dose of this stuff to get it into the kidneys and hopefully prevent the reperfusion injury that's thought to cause AKI. Um, when they looked at the raw rates of AKI, the placebo group was 50% and the QPI group was 37%. So they had a significant reduction just looking at all comers. They then went back and looked at patients who were at particularly high risk of AKI, which included those with a baseline estimated GFR less than 60, proteinuria, and those who were diabetic and on insulin. And what they found there was that 58% of the placebo group got AKI, and only 41% of the QPI group got AKI with a relative risk reduction of 29% for the QPI group. This is really exciting because we know patients who are at risk of AKI like this, and to have something that can reduce it to this degree is a very exciting development. Um, obviously, we're not getting rid of all of it, but it is certainly something that uh, with further refinement may become quite useful in the clinical management of patients. Yeah, I was fascinated that a single dose of this sRNA reduced the incidence, reduced the severity, and reduced the duration of AKI, and that there was the same rate of adverse events in this group as the placebo, and so it seemed like a really interesting and promising treatment in preventing AKI, and they're going to continue with a phase three trial in 2018. I look forward to those results in a year or two. Okay, our next study was presented by Dr. Hull from Richmond Vascular Center in Virginia, and he was giving us an update on arteriovenous fistulas for hemodialysis and a device that they have been testing. And so this was really, really interesting and fascinating to me. So what they did in this is they had 107 patients that were enrolled in a prospective non-inferiority trial at five sites. And so patients underwent ultrasound-guided anastomoses creation between the proximal radial artery and the perforating vein. And they used this device called Ellipsis, which he mentioned to us is under FDA review right now. And so what this device actually does is it actually creates this anastomoses and does not require suturing. And so I thought that was fascinating. Um, and all the procedures are performed in an outpatient center, and the whole procedure takes 23 minutes, and it's considered minimally invasive. Well, I thought this was fascinating, too, because access is the bane of our existence in nephrology. First of all, there is no incision required. So they run this six French catheter device via an anti-cubital vein down the arm, 
they're using ultrasound to guide it the whole way. And when they find the spot where this vein is adjacent to the radial artery, they activate the device. A small part of it perforates into the radial artery. They have to activate it a couple of times and then it withdraws itself from the anastomosis when the tissue fusion has taken place. There is some sort of nanotechnology involved uh, that we didn't go into during the press conference. I'm hoping we can learn more about that tomorrow when they actually present the paper. Um, the other impressive thing about this is the maturation time seems to be lower than it is for actual AV fistulas anywhere from 70 to 100 days. And at 90 days, they've got 86% efficacy, which is about double what they're seeing with AV fistulas. He mentioned to you that there were no incidents of inflammation, that there was reduced pain, and that this is a, a new method of continual care, and that the, he thinks this is really changing the field. And I was very impressed by this little device. And you asked a question specifically about the size of the arteries and veins that this device can uh, work on. Did well, you want to comment on that? Yeah, as a pediatric nephrologist, uh, many of our younger children are unable to get fistulas because their vessels just aren't big enough to be sutured. He says that this will work in something as small as a two millimeter vessel. The average vessel size in their study was three millimeters. Also, this device is currently available and being used in Europe, and it is under FDA approval review right now. So I'm hoping we'll be able to see this and start using it soon. Yeah. It also means that we've got a device that you don't require a vascular surgeon to create your um, access, which is sort of exciting. Very exciting. The final trial we heard about this morning was the MENTOR trial, and this was presented by Dr. Fervenza and Dr. Katrin. This was a comparison okay. of cyclosporin and rituximab for idiopathic membranous nephropathy. That's right. And they had 181 subjects screen and 130 patients were randomized. Ultimately, what they found was that in the 12 months that they were on the drug protocol, both cyclosporin and rituximab had similar results for achieving complete remission, partial remission, and no remission in patients. So the response patterns were all quite similar. Um, they then followed them for another 12 months after stopping treatment. And what they found was the patients who had rituximab did much better in that second 12 months, presumably because you'd altered the B cell population permanently with the rituximab. Now there are a number of unanswered questions from this trial, like what would have happened if you'd continued another medication in some of these patients after the first 12 months, especially in the ones who didn't achieve a complete remission. It's one thing to stop treatment completely if it looks like you may have fixed the patient, but if someone's still spilling significant proteinuria, I'm always a little leery of stopping treatment completely. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing they reported was that there were far fewer adverse events in the patients treated with rituximab. So not only does it seem to work better and last longer, but it was um, less of a problem for the patients. So I think we'll be seeing much more rituximab use in this population in the future. Great. 
Well, then the last event in our press conference this morning was actually not a surprise to us because at the plenary, the Chief Technology Officer of the Office of Health and Human Services, Bruce D. Greenstein, had come in and announced the partnership between public and private sector uh, to develop the Kidney Innovation Accelerator. Um, this is essentially an incubator for promising new kidney therapies where you'll have uh, the capital and uh, the prioritization to try and bring new therapeutic options, especially for prevention and cure uh, before dialysis or transplant uh, to the forefront and get better study and more rapid uh, commercialization. Right, I think anything that highlights the importance of kidney research and kidney care in our country is fantastic. And so this idea of partnership among different aspects and creating this kidney innovator accelerator, I think is very fascinating. And they're hoping to start rolling it out in the second quarter of 2018. So we'll see what this all means. I hope it means something good. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for joining us for our review of the high-impact clinical trials. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology. Music